Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans, after all, it's only pressure, you got this, Adidas. Welcome to On The Verge, this is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we're joined by John Mioli of the Baltimore Sun, who will join us to talk about the 2021 Orioles, the state of the farm system, and we'll get a little bit into the 2022 season as well. That'll be coming up in a moment. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business. It was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we'll start off with the big news that uh, broke a little bit before we came on the air here on Monday, that Gunnar Henderson has been promoted from high A Aberdeen to double A Bowie. Um, as you know, if you've been listening to this show all year and following the minor leagues, Henderson has shot up the prospect rankings this year by basically becoming a consensus top 100 prospect in the game. Um, and although he's been a little bit more up and down at Aberdeen than he was at Bowie, he had been coming on strong lately. So I'll start with John here. Um, what's your reaction to the promotion? Um, I, I was I was taken aback by it at first. Second, it was at an end of there was a uh, was somebody who used to work with the Orioles in Madtown. I was there with some of the other writers. We were all we were all uh, sending sending this guy off, and it, we got the text all at once. It's like, oh, that's a little weird. And then you think about it. You know, I was there. I want to say a week and a half ago. Uh, when, when Aberdeen was home last, and and even though Gunnarsson Henderson's had you know, like you said, an up and down time there in Aberdeen, a little bit of a tough time going. He was ball hard. He was good at some of the games that I saw, and it kind of makes um, from from the sense that Bowie is pushing for a playoff spot, and if they want Gunnar Henderson to get as many at bats as possible this year, which I'm sure is the is the goal, then having him be a part of that playoff push and maybe even get games and and part of that atmosphere is is probably worth in run yeah and you have to figure that the plan has been to start him there next year anyhow so this can be a little bit of a tune-up for him uh before we dive into the interview um with john bob nick do either of you have uh anything you want to say here about the promotion i was definitely surprised by it but it does make sense when you think about it a little bit more you know the playoff push coming up and Gunner, yeah, he has been hitting into a little bit of tough luck, hitting the ball hard, getting squeezed by the umps a little bit the last couple of weeks. So his numbers are probably even a little bit better than they have been. And he's been pretty good uh, for the past two or three weeks now. So get him up there with Jordan Westberg, restart that competition that they had going on in Delmarva to start the year, and then get him ready to come in to 2022, start at AA, and try to work his way from there. 
Yeah, I'm just like, 19 straight games. He ended his time in Aberdeen getting on base, uh, which is super impressive. Like you guys mentioned after that slow start. And he, he just turned 20 like two months ago. That's what blows my mind as well. He's just barely turned 20 years old. And now he's got two promotions this year. So super exciting to see a little bit more of Gunnar Henderson. And hopefully Bowie makes these playoffs and winning seven straight last week puts him in a pretty good position, but still a lot of baseball left down there in Bowie. So we'll um, get in now to our conversation with John Mioli, the Baltimore Sun. Um, John, thank you for joining us. And I'm going to actually start this off by mentioning a piece that was just published today over at the Baltimore Sun, where you talked about how the CBA, the impending expiration of the current CBA, brings some uncertainty into the mix for the 2022 draft, as changes possibly could mean that the Orioles, even if they finish with the worst record in the game, might not necessarily have the number one pick. So can you give our listeners a little bit of the background on the story and tell them maybe how concerned they should be about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for mentioning that. Uh, it was just something that came to my attention. It, it wasn't brought to my attention, but I just thought about it. You know, everything on the table in the CBA. So I checked, and, and it turned out it's not locked in. Now, now how they would go about it, changing the draft order if they were going to do that. You know, if it's the worst record, like, roll last five years, then, you know, the order of that too. So it's not, like, that's not a big deal. If they do it, something like to incentivize teams that try to make the playoffs and don't, that would be a problem. Um, I think overall the players union is going to really, really try to combat pretty much everything that's happened in Baltimore over the last three years, whether it's, you know, major league goal, uh, and veteran players and going with, you know, inexpensive and experienced alternatives, whether it's, um, you know, I don't know about the draft, uh, you know, pool manipulation, but generally incentivizing to not win so that they could be better in the term is something that the union is not interested in at all. And one of the hearts of that is the draft. You know, the Orioles might try to be better and have better players and, you know, do things differently if there wasn't such an incentive to having the worst record because not only do you get the high pick, uh, as we come to find out over these last couple of years, get a larger bonus pool from that. And I think the bonus pool is probably at this point more more what than the pick. So, in terms of what happens, you know, that's a big concession for the league to make to the players. Because, you know, at this point, a half a dozen teams are playing for their draft pick. You know, they're only trying to get a high pick. So the Orioles aren't alone in that, and it would be hard to get sign-off on. It would probably take something significant from the players. But I think I, – I thought it would just put that on the radar and say, hey, you know, this is not given. Even if it's a 3% chance that, that – that they that the draft order does not go the way it did. I thought it was I thought it was necessary to at least raise that possibility because you're gonna have the worst record probably. So you don't want people to be surprised if it doesn't happen. Is there any hint as to how long it's gonna take for the CBA to get signed? Is it gonna drag into next season or you think it's gonna get uh fixed together relatively quickly? Um you know I haven't dealt with a work stoppage, you know, cover since I started covering baseball, I understand. I, I understand they're very unpleasant. And for that reason, I don't want there to be one, but I don't know after, you know, the players probably have a pretty bad taste in the mouth from the last CBA and how some of the stuff went last year. And if I had to make a guess, it would be, it, it would not be a pleasant experience for anyone involved. And, and it, it might go a little bit. 
So you're a beat writer that takes this kind of holistic look at the Orioles' entire organization. You really dig into the player development process. Uh, does this come from your background covering prospects? We know that's kind of where you got a lot of your beginning work in. Um, or is this just the direction that the organization is going in or, or a combination of both? Uh, def- definitely a combination of both. Um, when I started covering the Orioles for 2016 season, I had spent you know, probably four years um, in the early 2010s when I was come in college, coming to college for a minor league site that covered Sox, SoxProject.com. It still exists. It hasn't been redesigned. It's fantastic. It's just like an old school like HTML website, scouting reports. They, they We had a beefed up news page at the time where, you know, they made the games. I'd be down here, you know, in the Sally League and in the Carolina League. And, and that was really, you know, it was just a way to get to go to games and write about baseball because it's really hard to just say you're going to Camden Yards and do that. You know, I'm fortunate to be at the Sun at the time. I really enjoyed the idea of telling those stories. I'm sorry, my baby's upstairs. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Right. <laughs> she, she, uh, she's having a tough time right now. Yeah. Um, so, so when I started covering the Orioles in 2016, um, Orioles fans will that was a very solid beat core who had been it for a long time. You know, it was the same players. They'd been together for four or five years in the clubhouse. It was the same beat that had been together for four or five years in the clubhouse. And all I wanted to do was find a place that I could do something, you know, not to distinguish myself. I wasn't trying to, like, you know, draw attention to myself, but I wanted to do something that was different and unique. And having spoken to all those big games, uh, it, it was a natural fit. Now, at the time, in 2016, 2017, would I have even imagined that the caliber of player and you know, the processes and the things that are happening in the Orioles farm system would be possible? Absolutely not. But when a regime change happened and Ricardo and Cena, my beat partner, uh, t- took a different job and it came, you know, and I got elevated there, it, it was just a really fantastic coincidence that all the things I was interested in and thinking about and trying to, to carve out my own niche were, were the things that, that came, you know, front and center of what the Orioles were trying to do. Yeah, I think we can relate to that a little bit. And uh, what would you say has changed since you uh, just started with uh, covering this minor league organization and player development uh, up until now with the Elias era? Obviously, it's a lot, but just how different is it? it it's it's different in the sense that, and I think this 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 can go for this can go for the whole Orioles organization, every aspect of baseball operations, and it's not just player development. Uh, the Buket Buck Show Walter Orioles did a lot of things really well. They won a lot of games. I'll tell you, they won the most games in the American League for a five-year run. It's very difficult to do in as we're now about you know in the competitive market with the market size. All the reasons that the Orioles can't win now were were reasons that it was exceptional that they did when they when they did. But it was not a holistic. It was not a holistic, you know, one you know, one vision, one goal organization. So you had a scouting department that would draft players and you had a player development department that would develop them and the scouting people like players that the player development people didn't like and vice versa. And it was just very siloed. So there was not, it was not a situation where, you know, we had 25 people, you know, on an affiliate and we would say, let's get all 25 of these guys good as fast as possible and move them up. It was, you know, I might like this guy. I don't like this guy. I'm going to, you know, everyone's going to do the same three hitting drills. Everyone's going to, you know, throw a 30-pitch bullpen, work up a sweat, 
go take a shower, all that type of stuff. So it's, it's gotten very individualized. It's gotten very you know, progressive in that sense of the drills, the, the, the tactics, just the holistic approach to improving players. And, and I've been struck over the last couple of years about, you know, they'll set out a goal. They'll say, okay, we're going to revamp our pitching department. What is it? It means we're going to strike out more guys. We're going to have lower whips. 2019, they do uh, entering the 2020 season. They didn't have a season, but they going to get all these new hitting coaches in. What's that going to mean? It's going to mean, you know, percentage way up, walk rates way up. And once they got those in place, that's what happened. So I think that's been the most striking is not only that there is a holistic vision, but every time, you know, they set out to do thing at this point, it, it's, it's borne out. It's been accomplished. And I think that's to be commended. So shifting gears over to the current team right now, um, you look at the outfield, Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins look like locks to be back next year. Um, but there are questions elsewhere, specifically with Anthony Santander, whose name has been floated in trade rumors um, for a while now. And DJ Stewart, who on paper has not quite put together a great season to plate, could be a DFA candidate if the Orioles are looking to clear roster spots. How do you see the outfield uh, situation sorting itself out over the offseason? It's going to be really interesting. I think that, I think that, the Santander aspect is, is going to be a really fascinating one because, you know, he'll still have, I believe he still has three arbitration years left after this. So, so there is a, there is a lot of, there is an added value to a team that might want to acquire him to, to do so. But at the same time, you know, looking back on it last year, last off season would have been time to move him. If you're going to do it, given, given just the stop and start nature of his season. You know, I can't imagine. I honestly, as I'm saying this and thinking about it, like I can't imagine another spring training and another season where it's like, oh, there's these like six outfielders and like they're all here and we're just going to see how it plays out. But, but I think that in terms of roster spots, I know they're going to need a ton of them for the Rule Five Draft. I'm sure that you know, I'm sure they're licking their chops at all the guys the Rays are going to have to DFA when they when they uh, when they you know activate all the guys off their 60 day injured list. I'm sure they're going to chop at that. You know all the reasons that the Orioles are going to need to clear roster spots is going to be a lot of them that need to do. But I think that, you know, just so with some of the pitchers we've seen in the last like two weeks, they're going to be able to do that. And I think even though it's probably going to be really frustrating for people covering this and maybe even Brandon and Hyde himself, I think that they're just going to have, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of just let this outfield mix roll a little longer um, because I'm not sure other than just clearing space, other guys, the is going to be to to move on from anyone at this point, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, I know the outfield. And then you have all these really young outfielders, too, coming up. Kyle Stowers, Robert Newstrom, Zach Watson. We'll talk about some of these guys later on. But the outfield is definitely going to be a fun positional group to watch. But transitioning to the infield, Jemai Jones has been up for a couple of weeks now. What's been your impression of his overall play so far with the Orioles? It, it's it's in challenge. It's been challenging for him. It's pre, it's pretty clear. Uh, you know, from the first game, it was up. Those first couple games, I noticed that he was really getting pounded inside with fastballs, and it wasn't so much that he wasn't getting around on him. It wasn't swinging on him, and then called strikes. So teams just keep going back on, keep keep going, going back and going back and going back, and that's going to happen in the big leagues. Find a way to get you out. You know, it's 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 an interesting kind of study study. But I, I'm thinking about it as I was making it happen, that that's the kind of pitch that inside, you know, a ball, half a ball, ball and a half off the plate that 
on the swing scores that they do is probably you get credited for not swinging at that. But when the games are on, you know, mass and mass and two at seven Oh five big leagues and, and you're not swinging at those. Nobody's going to patch on back on the way back into the dugout and say, Oh, that was a good at bat. You know, you struck out. And that is something that, you know, you have to adjust to. I think that I think the Orioles knew bringing him up when they did, he wasn't, you know, bringing as well as he had other points in the season. I think they knew there was going to be an adjustment period, but it got to the point where you just had to bring him up and they did. And they're letting him take his lumps. But I think that, I think that, you know, he's going to go pretty clear idea. He needs to, what needs to get better, you know, this offseason going into spring training. And to his credit, he's he fully acknowledged that that's what he's here to do. He's trying to figure out you know, what he's good at, what he's not good at, and he's not going into the, you know, with his eyes closed. He's trying to take all that in and figure out. Yeah, not a great way to get started when he got called out on strikes on, like, three different <laughs> terrible calls. But, uh, yeah, and speaking of slight disappointments, the more of a major disappointment has been the pitching prospects that came up this year. Obviously, the likes of Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, Alexander Wells, Zach Luther, they've all, you know, taken their lumps this season. We were all hoping to see some progression from them and, you know, make a case towards that 2022 rotation, but it just hasn't happened. For Wells and Lowther, how do you think uh, the up and down management of them from AAA up to the taxi squad to the big leagues, how does that affect their development this year? I think it does. I think that I, I think those are guys who, you know, I think you saw. Definitely without Alexander Wells, I'm not. I pull it out of my head about Lowther's season, but I know with he kind of got into a good groove at play, really helped. He's a guy who, and and both of them, they they pitched well all through their careers, really with very little friction. But if you're going to hit it, it's going to be in AAA, and I think that just the nature of not having last season uh, to get that AAA experience, not having you know as much pitching for as the Orioles thought and just having to use those guys. I, th- I think it's, it's, it, it was definitely an issue, but, but to their, I think they both, you know, when they did go down, they knew what they needed to do. They needed, knew what was going to be their, their development points and what they try to figure out how to improve on. And, and they did that to some extent, but I think with that whole group, like you mentioned, you know, the fact that it's been, you know, the best case scenario is they're pretty much where we were last year in terms of like maybe these guys will be rotation pieces, even though there's been a full season of, of major league baseball where every opportunity to prove it. It's, it's one of the big downsides of this season for those for sure. Yeah. Fortunately Aiken has pitched better of late, but Kramer came back up for a spot start and got lit up again. So the stuff still seems the same as it was when he was pitching well in 2020. Uh, do you think it's mostly mental with him? It's, it seems like it. Um, you know, somebody, you know, when the Orioles traded for him in 2018, he had the minors and struck. He was, you know, there, like we talked about, like I mentioned, there was no friction there. There was no, you know, there were no bumps road. And, and to some extent he had, I guess 2019, you know, he started, he got hurt in spring training and he had to come back. And, but once he got going in Bowie in 2019, it was smooth sailing again. And I think that, that's what you're seeing for pretty much all of these guys you know we mentioned our henderson you know the orioles pushed him to aberdeen really quickly because it doesn't do a ton of good to just be better than everyone you know keegan aiken said to himself he's not keegan aiken isn't chris sale he's not going out there throwing like 98 but he 
admitted after not admitted he said after us recently he was like yeah you know coming up i tell stuff guys throw my fastball so i didn't really have to worry about any of this stuff and that's not how you get that's not how you get better these guys are all unfortunately taking those lumps and trying to figure it out and getting you know it's the, yeah, they're getting punched in the mouth. That's what they would. That's what the coaches would say. They're dealing with this on the fly in the big leagues in front of everyone, and that's really challenging. And I think that, I think that when you take that into account, you know, someone like Dean Kramer having the struggles he did, you know, facing the Yankees like once a week for a month, like it's just it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, that could explain the you know the stark difference between AAA and the majors this year. It seems like it's even more of a gap than usual. Uh, speaking of who's going to catch these guys, like Agate and Kramer and stuff next year, um, do you think Pedro Severino comes back to be the, that veteran backstop to Adley Rutschman next year? Uh, I, I think that I think that if Pedro Severino is is, in, is back with the Orioles, um, he'll be on a much shorter leash than he's had in the past. Um, I, I imagine that it's more like an Austin Wins type, you know, and Holiday type, who would be who would be Adley Rutschman's catching. Part because at that point, and I think that the T as the changes in general, you know, the hope for Pedro Severino when, when the Orioles, you know, got him and and you know brought him back in arbitration and gave him nice raises that he's a bad first catcher and that's not really what they're getting now. They get it in fits and starts and you know very very occasionally, but but he doesn't hit like a bat first catcher and he doesn't catch. But he does, I guess, catch like a bat first catcher. So, you know, he doesn't catch like a glove for catcher for sure. So I think that I think that there's going to be an incentive to, you know, if you have Ali Rutschman, who's going to be a premium defender and a really good hitter there, so going to have a pretty improved lineup all around him given, you know, the way they've been in, in you know, hitters in the last few drafts. So you, you can get it with having somebody who's not really hit too much and, you know, it should be a really sound defensive catch and throw guy as, as the guy multiple times a week while Adley's DHing. So speaking of Adley, I mean, let's talk about the top prospect in all the baseball. We know the impact he can make with his bat next year in this lineup, but how big of a difference do you think he's going to make defensively and with his leadership abilities? Uh, what, how, but how big of a difference he's going to make in that win loss column next year for the Orioles? I'm not sure exactly how it's going to show up in the win loss column because there's going to be a lot of different things that, you know, he's not going to show up and have this team win 80-something games. If he does, then then I think that's even the pipe dream that the Orioles couldn't have expected when, when, when they drafted him. But I think that I think that it's going to be, you know, you're taking away, I think, having Adley Rutschman up here, even though he's going to be a rookie, he's going to be, a, you know, a young catcher learning to play in the big leagues. I think that having him up there is going to be just kind of removing, like, another set of scaffolding almost, you know. If if you have catchers who are who are who are shaky catching the ball, and you have young pitchers pitching to them, and you know there's issues with the catchers, you know the infielders have range, you know ball falling in the corners. There's all reasons why things aren't in your way, and you can look at that and say, all right, well, yeah, you know, make that pitch, but didn't make that play. When Adley Rutschman's back there, you know, calling the games the way he's supposed to, blocking ball in the dirt, throwing guys out. You know, there's defenders around the infield. There's no real excuse not to perform. If you don't perform at that point, it's not because you need a better catcher. You're not going to find one probably. So I think that's where it's make a difference. And you're really going to see, you know, just to see if the whole team is like, all right, they finally called up Badly Rutschman. It's go time a little bit. And then you start. I don't know that necessarily he's going to be 
quantifiable wins and loss wise, but it will certainly feel different. And I think it's going to be another reason, you know, why some guys around him might play better. Looking at the other you know, top prospect for the Orioles, Grayson Rodriguez, he's had an excellent year, obviously, but the Orioles have also been, I think it would be fair to say, conservative in the way that they've used him this year and how they've limited his innings. Based off of what you know right now, what would you expect the plan for him to be in 2022? Is that lease going to get longer? And how much of that is maybe split between AAA and the majors? Uh, I, I definitely think that the leash is going to be longer. Um, you know, I think that you know he's right, he's basically right around where he was in 2019. Now, I believe I think he had 90 something innings then. He's at 90, either four or 98 right now. I don't remember specifically. I think that he'll get over 100, and then you can reasonably. I don't know what the specific you know climb is going to be, but I think it's going to be significant enough that you know minor league season starts to first week of April, he'll be in AAA at that point. And then it, it's kind of the same thing as, you know, with Adley Rutschman now. It's like once you get there and you're doing it, there's not really that many reasons not to just say, okay, you know. I think there's honestly the reason why Rutschman was in Bowie for so long is because you can't have a Norfolk in OPS for three months and you have no excuse not to call him up. So if Grayson Rodriguez is, is in AAA, is pitching well, um, to the extent that he has, sorry, move my computer around and just knock my. If he's pitching well as he he is in Bowie um, down there with Justin Ramsey and staff there, I think that I have to assume that's going to be in the majors. You know, they knew they had a really special arm, obviously in 2019, but I think that once he started pitching the way he did in Aberdeen this year, and all the stuff they saw over the 2020, the quarantine year at the belt site through instructs, you know, all that stuff. I think once they realized that. It wasn't just backfield good. It was really, really good. They started planning out how to get him healthy this year so he can pitch in the big leagues next year. I think that's what they did, and I think that I think that you know they're pretty close to seeing at least the first part of that um, executed pretty well. You know, knowing that you're probably going to have Rutzman and Rodriguez at the major league level next year, do you think this puts the onus on the Orioles to at least do more with the major league roster, not necessarily go get a top free agent, but to improve the major league roster more this off season in hopes of taking a big step towards being a competitive team? Or should we expect more of the same next year, but for the roster to just look a little bit better? I would probably say closer to the second part where, where they're going to go the same are they going to have a little more flexibility paying, you know, a third, I believe, if we were supposed to pay Chris Davis? Is there going to be a little more money floating around so that maybe you get a $5 million shortstop instead of a $1.5 million shortstop? Maybe. Is that going to make a huge difference? I don't know. Um, you know, the, the inexpensive shortstops they've gotten are pretty good, so maybe that was a bad example. Um, but but I, think that, I think that where that money spent is just to have you – know, a better Matt Harvey, to be really honest, to have a better, um, you know, a more effective on Armstrong type. You know, somebody who can just, you know what you're going to get. You know, you knew what you're going to get with Matt Harvey, um, for better or worse, and they milked every last pitching that guy had in his body <laughs> and done for the year. Um, you know, you, they, just need, they just need players who are a lot more consistent than what they have. That's not to say there's not on the roster. Uh, we see that from time to time, but they need. They. I, I would say that if they're going to spend, the priority would be 
on pitchers can, you know, just be consistent and give you what you give you something, you know, relatively stable from start to start or relief outing to relief outing. I don't know that they're going to bank on anything like that. Um, I'm not sure there's going to be like a Jason Worth type, like here's us spending a lot of money so you know we can do it and we're going to do it. I don't think it's going to be anything like that. It'd be pretty impressive if there was. But I think that whatever money they do spend, you know, would would be well spent on some pitching, obviously. Yeah, and speaking of pitching, you know, there's been a lot made the past few weeks about the depth that the Orioles have in the minor leagues, whether it's the cupboard is bare, the cupboard is full. What is your take on that? Do you think that the the depth that the pitching in the minor leagues that the Orioles have, is that on par with other major league organizations in the top five or ten farm systems? Or you, or you agree with certain people that, you know, there needs to be work done there still? So so I know that the Orioles, like an analysis recently of, of where their pitching stacks up against other organizations pitching, and they think that that, that is stacks up well. I'm not terribly familiar with what organi- other organizations have um, have in terms of, but I don't know. I mean, obviously, not a lot of organizations have a Grayson Rodriguez type, have a Yale Hall type, um, and I think those are those are important when you're talking about what there is here. And I think that the main difference, I think the main difference between a farm system that is really struggling to develop pitching and have a lot of pitching on the horizon is is those, you know, second and third tier guys. And the Orioles have had no pitch before. You know, we've you guys you guys have been around for a while. I've been around for a decent amount of time. We all know what that looks like. We all know what we all know what a minor league system without without viable pitching at every level, without interesting arms, without without a lot of hope that major league pitching can come from within looks like. Um before, before became you know the the main thing that I like to do and, and and other than you know while I was covering the big league team you know I would go to Frederick you know once every couple of weeks and I'd have to figure out who's pitching when because only one or two guys on every rotation was worth seeing and you have to schedule it around there and see a guy who's you know throwing my on hour cookies nobody's really interested in that nobody wants to read about that each rotation. Whether it's Del Marvo with Gento, I might have mispronounced his name. Whether it's you know, Aberdeen had Drew Romp, basically the whole Aberdeen rotation got promoted out <laughs> full stop. You know, one of the guys is in Triple A. One of the guys, the best pitching prospect in baseball. They have had a little struggle since then, but you know they love Brandon Young. Um, I'm like I'm blowing on who else? Um, gonna go there to see. Can't do this all without. But Bowie's rotation, very, very good. They had like 10 at one point. They were trying to figure out how to get guys, and they couldn't do it because they had 10 guys who were double-A caliber pitchers who needed the rotation. It was just a jigsaw puzzle every single day. You had guys who were million-dollar arms literally piggybacking each other. And then in AAA, you have all these guys, you know, Smith, Cal Brada, who, who, who were brought in, you know, as targeted trade guys who they were like. So I don't think you could have that conversation – Five years ago, list off, you know, a half of pitching prospects who, and oh, you're leaving some out. If we did that, like in 2016, you couldn't have that conversation. There's not that many guys. I, I remember doing the the baseball America list back then, and it's all just hope and prayer. It's and this year is going to be a lot of hitters too, but but there are, there is a lot of interesting pitching. I think they've done a good job of stockpiling that in recent years. 
I remember when I first got into this whole deal uh, a couple years ago that, um, and I was at a site that's gone now called babybirdland.com. And uh, one of the first bigger pitching prospects, uh, the guy who ran the site told me to go write about uh, was Joe Gunkel. Uh, and so that's the quality of pitching talent that was down the system. Uh, so definitely, definitely grown there. Um, I want to talk about another top prospect too. A lot of us had high hopes for coming into this year. Using El Diaz, I think despite all the injuries and struggles, we thought we'd be seeing him at the major league level this year. Um, it's been much of the same for him this season. Uh, more injuries, more struggles in Norfolk. Uh, do you think there's still a path for him, or is the rise of the outfield prospect depth and a combination of his performance and injury history just becoming too much to overcome? I think it's really, really difficult to. Um to kind of explain why he's not performing anymore. Um, it's He's not this front office guy. You know, they like Neil Diaz, obviously. They think he's a talented player. But it's not, you know, if this if there hadn't been a, like a front office change, if Dan Duquette was still in charge, there would be a priority on making sure he worked out because you want that trade to look good. You traded Manny Machado away. That was the guy you got back. That was the headliner. He needs to be good. Oh. He doesn't really have that favored nation status. I don't know that he would have had it three years later in, in a, you know, given everything that's happened in a different situation. But he's a guy who just needs to, to be healthy and play well at this point. That's what it's going to take. And he hasn't shown any ability to do, to do that um, this season. And I, I'm not sure if he feels like there's no opportunity. I'm not sure if he feels like you know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, on his day, he's a very, very good player. There were times in 2019, and you talk to guys who were on that team, they 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 would marvel. He would carry them for weeks at a time, and that was a really good team. And when he, when he was healthy and playing well, he's a really, really difficult out. He hasn't been either of those things, yeah, any of those things. And so I want I, I want to say that it's still in there. Um, it's just hard to know, you know, being down in North and not really getting as much interaction with anyone down there, whether, whether that's still the belief. But it's really, really disappointing. I'm sure the Orioles and I'm sure for people who watch Manny Machado do cool stuff on on their, on their Twitter feeds and on television every night to know that, you know, to know that the player who was supposed to be the guy who made that trade worthwhile has been. I don't envy using you know, LDS for having to be that guy to, having to wear that on his shoulders. I don't know how much that has to do with it, but I know that I do know that it's inescapable. That's that's just what's happening. So you want to, you feel for him, you know, maybe he goes to the fall league and he, because he missed so much time, he gets a bunch of at bats and he feels like that's a good showcase for himself and he plays well and something with the Orioles or elsewhere comes from it. Maybe he can do that. Maybe none of that stuff happens. You just hope that he can, you know, figure it out at the point. Looking at an outfielder whose season has gone basically the exact opposite of UCL Diaz, and that's Kyle Stowers. Uh, he's really powered his way up the prospect rankings this year, not just with his home run total, but has also just proven to be a good all-around hitter who draws more walks than expected, but those strikeouts are still high. And we knew that coming out of college that that was an issue for him. And it continues to be something that stands out when you look at his stat line. Do you think it's okay to overlook strikeouts to a certain extent in today's game, or are his strikeouts something that are a sign that he has more work to do? Um, I think that 
I think that, and I, you know, and and I guess in a roundabout way, I'll answer this. Um, when I was speaking to someone about about this year's Orioles draft class, where they you know made it a point of emphasis and told their scouts, find guys that don't miss, go find guys that make contact. You know, even if they want to see, if you see guys who put together good at bats and battle and don't strike out a lot, write them up. We'll be interested. We'll put our guys on it. We'll put the ants on it. And the reason for that is, and I think there's some real ability to it, is that it's really hard if guy, it's really hard to lose. If you're who makes contact consistently and doesn't swing and miss, that's who you are. That's an innate ability. Just like the flip, if you're a guy who's swinging a lot, it's really hard to change that. Now, I think that holistically, having someone like Kyle Stowers in a big league lineup can be fine, you know, if you hit your home runs, still get on base a decent amount. How you make out is not necessarily something to completely, you know, hung up on, especially if he's in an outfit. Colton Kowser doesn't strike out that much, but then Adley Rushman doesn't strike out that much. You can, uh, but Royals know that it's an issue that he was going to have, and that was part of the reason why there was some the optimism on, on him was cautious because as hard as he hits the ball, he does strike out. And to strike out, tend to strike out. It's, it's hard not to. It's it's hard to kick that in the bigs if you're a guy who has done that before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, you know, have you gotten any inclination to who the Orioles internally feel like have burst onto the scene and raised their stock the most after this minor league season? And conversely, who has dropped? Uh, who they thought might be great and just hasn't performed up to standards? Um. A few guys like that have gotten on my radar. Um, I feel bad. I do it to somebody every year. I go and talk to them, and then they get hurt, and then don't play again. I did that to Joey Ortiz um, right around when all those guys got got promoted. Um, I think I talked to him like the big, um, you know, the big day. I don't remember. They all kind of blend together. I was there a couple times that week, but you know, he was somebody that you heard a little bit about last off season. Um, as I was making my rankings calls as somebody who they were really happy with and having seen him in Aberdeen in 2019, I was, uh, I was skeptical um, that, that that was what we that that's what was happening now, but he put on like 30 pounds of muscle and started driving the ball and was kind of becoming a poster of what they were trying to their hitters to do. Not, not everybody has to put on that much muscle. Um, it's probably really difficult to do. I couldn't do it no matter no matter what training program was on, but um, but he he was obviously having a tech season before he got hurt. I think that I think they've been really happy with how the pitchers from the Dylan Buddy trade in general have have out. knew about Kalvich from the alternate site last year, but what Kalvich has done has been really impressive. What Zach Peak has done has been really impressive. Um, look at Pinto from a different Angels. That's really really impressive stuff. And I think there's also been some guys down in the, in the Florida complex, part of their international classes and in front of those international trades that are doing it too. I also, I'm just kind of rambling. I'm naming guys, but I think Kobe Mayo also is somebody that they're really, really happy has panned out because it's really a big risk to take a school player, uh, you know, and give them that much money. That's where, you know, you swing big and you can make big contact, but you can also have, there's a lot of risk involved in that. And he's been fantastic at Delmarva. There's, there's really no other way to say it. that. 
I think that him doing what he's done since he came up with the 21 draftees has been a real, not saving grace because Jordan Westbrook's having a really good year, but it would have been a really, it would be really hard to look back on that class a year later if Westbrook is the only one who had like a full, you know, productive representative. And I think Kobe Mayo and what he's done is making a lot of people feel better about that. Definitely for sure. Um, you mentioned, you know, Gene Pinto and some of those guys in the Florida Complex League, some of the younger players. What are your general thoughts on this, you know, really growing group of international prospects that the Orioles have at the lower levels from Pinto, Michelle Desson, the Isaac De Leon guy who's heard a lot about. Um, what are your thoughts on these guys? It's, 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 it's what they have to be doing, you know, and, and it's, I think that it shows well that you know, the players are signing, even though they're not really, you know, been at the top of the barrel at this point when they're making international signings, even now they're not getting, you know, their first crack at all the good guys. I think the guys they've signed being talented and productive and, and showing signs of being good players and the guys that they're targeting in trades being productive and good players, a good sign. It's much comes. It's 30 something percent of the big leagues that come from, you know, Latin American science. What, you know, the accepted figure is, but so much more go to that um, than just who makes it to the big leagues. It's, it's having guys you, who you can trade when you're ready to do that. You know, I feel, I feel like when I was doing Red Sox minor league stuff, they would trade, they would trade to, Latin American shortstop were 18 years old in the DSL every single year because they were going out and they, hey, you know, these guys could be good, but the guy we're getting is good and we're going to sign a couple more next year. So it doesn't really matter. You know, you keep Xander Bogarts, trade a half dozen other guys who I can't even name right now because you can just, these guys are, are, are wanted players who teams like the Orioles are in position to right now. Hey, you know, I'll take a fire on that. Maybe it'll be the FCL player in August, and that's what they did. So, so you, it, there's so much value to having those players, other than the fact that it's just a necessary, you know, established thing that needs to have big leagues is assigned international players, and it's just a good thing that they're doing it. So you mentioned the Arizona Fall League earlier with Yusino Diaz, and that brings up another question we had, which is. Uh, do you know have any idea what the Orioles' plans for the AFL are this year, and which players do you think we may see there? Um, geez, um, I don't really have a ton information on like what their commitments are and what to send. Um, I think, especially given how long this season has been compared to last year, you know, you have people who were swinging back, you know, getting PP from their dad for, you know a year and a half and now they're facing live pitching every day as are worn down. So I think that anybody who's been fully healthy this year and, and has played a full season, unless there's a really specific reason for them to be there, I can't imagine that a player like that would be. But you look at, you, when you think as the top of your, uh, when when you think of guys off the top of your head who are, I missed, you know, Taron Vava missed a couple months. I think that he might be a candidate if I get him extra at bats. Um, I think Adam Hall's had a couple stints on the list. You know, that might be a candidate. He's obviously had a tough year. Although he's doing a letter in September, that might be a candidate there. Um, you know, I think there's a couple, you know, maybe a, I'm trying to think of a, oh, infielder. How about uh, draft. Cameron Bishop? Could he Cameron be a Bishop. shot? Yeah, he, he was going to be pitching side. 
Oh, who's their infielder from last year's draft? Who's hurt? Uh, yes, yes. I don't know if he's going to the or, or what. You know, just the guys. I think it's going to be guys who who miss time and they just need to get those at bat. But I think Cameron Bishop's a good a good option. And I know there's been a couple of pitchers in the 2019 draft class who had limited years. Um, again, they're not coming to the top head, but I think it's going to be guys like that who who they just want you know a representative year from. So we have a Twitter question here from JMD55. Is it time to start thinking about forward-thinking extensions with players like Mollinger means? That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I think that I think Orioles are in a position where and this is kind of how not necessarily, necessarily rebuilds, but you could either be a team that's always rebuilding or you could be a team that starts trying to win, you know? You look at, you know, you know the Astros made targeted extensions and kept because they they want to keep and who were going to be part of the foundation. And you could look at the uh, some like you know a team like the Pirates who, if, you know, John Means or it's not like the Orioles are like, you know, big market behemoths who who keep their players. But you know, if a team that had a really long track record of of trading away guys like Rick Mullins and John Means, like you know, say the Pirates, something like that sends a message that sends a message to your fans it sends a message to other teams that like yeah we might have these good players but you have them if you want just keep trying to get good players for now i think if the orioles want to be a team and by all accounts they do. once this top tier of prospects gets here once they do i think they're want to try to win and need to you need to commit to, you need to have guys like john means around it can't be a situation where oh he's he's arbitrary eligible he's making $3 million, he's got two years of control left, who wants them? You can't have stuff like that. It could be every trade deadline. Are we going to keep guys? Are we not going to keep these guys? I think at the point you need to say these are the these are the core guys. We're going to have potentially, you know, star-level players making the minimum for a few years. The CBA, we got to spend the money now. These are the guys you do it on. So here's another listener question, this one from Simpkin Tribute on YouTube. Do you have a sense of how many organizations are using the same modern techniques in drafting and development that Michael Elias has implemented? Are we at the point where most are doing so? Um, I, I think there's a few different aspects. I think on the app side, I think everyone has most of the same information. It's just a matter of how you, you use that information. So everybody knows Kyle Stowers was in the top five of – CA exit block in 2019. How much that means to you is probably 30 different valuations and 30 different draft databases and draft forecasts about how much that's the I think on the side, you know, they're doing something differently with the same information that a lot of people have. They're probably trying to get an edge in that, but I think that's kind of where it is. I think on the pitching side as well, pitching is pretty public in, in some of the things that are happening, you know, some of the development techniques. Um, I think a lot of the tools that get used everywhere are the same. Again, it's just a matter of how you value it. And how you, or I think that they might be a little more on the cutting edges on the hitting side. Um, they've basically gone full on into into this uh, into a new wave of hitting uh, with, with with Matt Blood bringing in the hitting coaches that he did, Ryan Blur, uh, Tom Eller to mention a few, uh, leaving some out, Anthony Villa down there. I think that what they're doing there and and they'll say it, you know, they're not not shy about it. The way they're structuring practices, workouts, games is you know, game prep is different from 
what other teams. And I think that it's because they're so fully invested in it. I was reading, I believe it was in the Athletic, go about how different the San Francisco Giants coaching staff was, and how it wasn't like former players and guys like that. It was all young people who want to challenge guys and want guys to get better. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I seems like what they're doing in Bowie. Um, I think that I think that there is an area that they are they are potentially maybe trying to get an advantage. That said, um, it's really hard to you know, develop hitting, and no matter how much you train that, the pitcher has an advantage. That's just how the game works. And pitcher, and that's why teams so much in pitching and pitching development because you know a good pitch is better than a good swing most of the time. But what you do with those good swings can can make a difference. I think the Orioles are really trying to get there. All right, and I think the last question we have written down comes from one of our patrons, David Adams. He asks, so much of the ability of Mike Elias to follow his plan for the rebuild is based on the involvement structure and spending of ownership. Can you give a current status update on the ownership? How involved are they? How willing to spend are they? And what is the likely outcome after Peter Angelos passes? Will the Suns keep it or sell it? I'm sure you have all the answers to this question, so let's hear it. <laughs> um, I, I wish I had a lot more answers on, on any of this than I do. Um, I think that I think that it's fair to say that 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 when the Angelos brothers hired Michael Elias, knew exactly what was going to happening uh, over these last three years, and potentially next year too. If we're, if we're being honest, um, hopefully not, but potentially next year. I think they knew about all that. I think that they're largely leaving that to him. Um, and focusing on other aspects of the business. Not sure what's going to happen. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of, you know, the pass on. I know that, I know that, you know, in, in Peter Angelo's declining health, there's been a lot of speculation about that. Um, it, it's really difficult to say payroll stuff. I think you're seeing now that a, they need masks and able to just end. I know that I would fight if we're talking about like, you know, a couple of dollars in legal fees versus like paying, you know, the nationals, like, you know, a hundred million dollars you pay them. I'd fight too. But at some point you have to like know how much you owe them and, and just have it settled and move on. So you can start spending money elsewhere. I think that still is, is having an effect on things. And, and unfortunately, you know, court King is taking out some of the massive money and the product they're putting in the field is taking out attendance money. So there's no doubt. About um, it shouldn't be on the fence to spend their money to go watch a team that's not able to compete on a nightly basis. And I don't begrudge anyone for not. Um, but I think the reality is, is that there are, there are consequences to that, that also they kind of keep this as a cycle until, until what Michael Isis to do starts working and this team starts winning until then. I think that it's hard to justify spending money. If you're not making money, I don't know how much money they're making. I'd love to if anyone wants books. <laughs> My teeth are open, but 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 absent knowing about that, I think it's just so murky. I, I, I it's hard to say. So before we wrap up tonight, Nick, Bob, and I are going to do what we always do at the end of every show, and we're going to quickly highlight a player that has stood out to us in the minor leagues, whether it's been a good game, a good week, and we're looking at players outside of our top thirty list. So I'm going to start with Bob. Yeah, this my pick is this week is not a prospect, but it's someone who doing these daily minor league recaps that we've been doing for the Patreon 
I see this guy's name like every other day. It's Ty Block. He's been pitching for the Delmarva Shorebirds. And I'm just really, I think I want to commend the Orioles for what they're doing with him. It just seems like they are letting him get healthy, prove that he's healthy. I don't think there's any chance he's going to pitch for the Orioles this year or stay in the organization, but they're giving him a shot to prove that he's healthy and maybe try out for a minor league deal somewhere else coming into the offseason. But he's been pitching well in the time that he's got down there, as he should, obviously, with his pedigree. But just cool to see and wanted to give that a shout out. So my pick this week is Christopher Cespedes. Um, interesting background as a minor league rule five guy. And one of the things that has stood out to me, he's he's been a hitter that has actually been significantly better this year after getting the promotion from Delmarva to Aberdeen. And that has continued into this month. Um, so far through 10 games in September, Cespedes hitting 378 with a 939 OPS. Uh, one thing that I know Nick talked about on an On the Verge Daily the other day is sort of the exit velos with Cespedes have always been reported really high. So he's put together a solid year and uh, continue that in this month. So I wanted to give him my shout out for this week. Definitely. And I'm going to ask you after this, John. So I want you to come up with uh, your, your guy, your favorite under the radar prospect that nobody's talking about. Uh, All right. Sorry, top 30. And it, yeah. And enlighten us. Uh, but my pick, I'm going with, I'm going to throw out the name Peter Van Loon. Um, we kind of mentioned briefly a lot of those 2019 draft picks and maybe hopefully them getting some extra work this year, but there are a lot of guys who really stood out in 2019 and then, you know, the, 2020 not having a season uh and it's a lot of those guys have struggled this year i think to be fair so i don't have any major takeaways about the 2021 pitching draft class quite yet but peter van loon is at the very top of my list of intriguing pitchers to watch in 2022 uh he got a start last week in delmarva four innings one hit no runs no walks four strikeouts um delmarva just doesn't want to stick to their center field camera feed and so it's hard a lot of times to get good reads especially on the pitchers uh, but I know we posted a clip of, I think it was a slider he threw, and someone commented and said, look, is that just a tricky camera angle, uh, camera tricks playing there, or is that slider legit? And Ryan Higgins, fellow 2021 Orioles draft pick, chimed in and said, no, that's legit. Like, that's that's real solid movement there. So uh, remember the name Peter Van Loon. It's an easy name to remember going into 2022. All right, I'm up. Okay, so, up. Yeah. Um, so I don't have your guys' front of me it might be that he's in there um he wasn't in baseball american rankings i did in the offseason i didn't do the midseason one so i'm gonna count it um i was really impressed last minor league game i was i saw zach peak um i don't know where he is in your rankings i'm sorry uh if i'm breaking the, the game here um, but he's just outside yep you got it um i, I think that i think that there are a lot of things that you like in a young pitcher um you know, he throws multiple pitches both sides. Hitters, left-handed, right-handed, he's throwing right-on-right changes and freezing guys. Um, he's aggressive with his fastball. It's really, you know, it's still predictable to an extent. You know, he's not like a young guy, but you can tell there's room to grow in there. I think that I think that those are the types of pitchers and, you know, who have who have been that the Orioles want. They have, you know, the fast traits that the Orioles want. They have you know, a little bit of projectability. I think that those are the types of players who are going to fit into, like, what the game is becoming, which guys who might not be, like, through the order guy, but, like, being some paternal lineup over one, once, one plus time, be, like, you know, bulkish, you know, be able to in a lot of different roles. Those guys are super valuable, um, and I think that he could be one of them. 
Well, John, we really appreciate you joining us tonight and our listeners know they can find you over the Baltimore sun. We're big fans of the work that you and Nathan Ruiz do over there. Um, so anything you just want to give our listeners a heads up on what to look for over the final weeks of the season? Um, we're back on the road, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, so, so in Boston this weekend, um, try to get to buoy, you know, at least once a week, wrap some stuff there, a little bank of playoffs and I'll go back down once, you know, once that road trip's over. Um, but probably going to be a lot of cool year end minor league stuff, year end Oriole stuff. I'll start making calls pretty soon on the baseball America, uh, top 30 list. It's a very, very intensive undertaking, but I, enjoy very very little about my job more than i enjoy doing that it's so much fun for these people and just kind of getting to pick brains coaches brains you know player development brains about what they saw what they learned over this year um so a lot of stuff just comes out you know stories little nuggets that get sprinkled to stories i don't you know maybe i could do a better job of you know making it seem like i talk to people when i do i just kind of drop stuff into stories so i could like should have like big flashing lights sourced, uh, but I don't. So, so that stuff will be in there on the website. Um, I just wanted to say that it's really cool that uh, guys asked me to come on. Excuse me, I've talked a lot. I talk really. I know long. we understand you're getting choked up. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I also just too much when I give answers to this stuff. It's uh, but um, no, it's really cool that you guys have. Been. It's really cool what you guys are doing. You know, I know that um, I know the how intensive the work is. You know, I used to have to do game recaps of the Red Sox Iron League stuff. I would do them on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night when I was a junior and senior in college, which were, like, honestly the worst times to do these things because you're, like, waiting for, like, box scores to refresh. It's, like, 1030. Everyone's trying to, like, go out and have fun. And I'm like, no, I do this. I do this. And, and you know, I know what it is to want to do that. You know, um, you know, work goes into making it happen and it's really cool what you guys have done in terms of putting all the videos out and keeping everybody up to date um i know it's helped me a lot because you're watching a game you're at a game um it's hard to pay attention to everything you guys are are filtering things very very nicely and, and i just wanted to say it's really cool uh seeing bro really appreciate that yeah thank you very much that means a lot yeah thank you so much for that john and uh, John Bioli from the Baltimore Sun, thank you for coming on tonight. Be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com uh, for continued coverage there of the Orioles, Ravens, and other sports. Bob has a couple of new stories up on the site that are definitely worth checking out. And uh, follow us on Twitter, at BSL and the Birds. Uh, we'll be back next week when we're joined by Baltimore Sports and Life owner Chris Stoner, who's also a co-host of The Warehouse, a fellow Baltimore Sports and Life podcast. So we're looking forward to that. Thanks again for John to John for coming on tonight. And for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. And real quick, if I could just shout out a couple yes. of patrons that have uh, signed on since last week. It's just three. Uh, Tyler B., Tom McGonigal, and Ellen Mooney. Thank you so much for your contributions. And just want to give a shout out. I have a shirt on right here that you can purchase at www.orioles.com. Uh, on the verge.com and there's some cool merch there if you're interested no no worries if not but just thought it was pretty cool to put out there all right well thank you bob and um we'll be back next week